my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. I am joined again this week by Dan and Adrian. We have a very special guest for you this week, Bethany Guajardo. She's a designer and a marketing strategist in her own right and a natural leader. And you'll find out what I mean when, as you listen to this episode. She's worked with leaders such as Brandon Bouchard, Deepak Chopra, and Wim Hof in their e-course efforts. She's a wealth of knowledge in the marketing and branding and design space. And, and we're so grateful to know her on that end, but also in the natural leadership and, and somebody who sees a gap and takes action. Without further delay, I give you Bethany Guajardo. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. Dan, Adrian are with me again this week. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. Doing great. Good to be here. It's great to have you. This week, we have a guest, Bethany Guajardo. Did I do your last name justice? I'm I'm surprised you did. You did. Yay. <laughs> I've been repeating it over and over in my brain before we started. <laughs> well, good, good practice. I, I My teacher in high school used to purposefully call me Guajardo. Oh, geez. <laughs> Which I didn't, I didn't mind. I don't, I don't get offended. Did they also, me. did they also eat fajitas? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I don't know. He was Indian. So maybe it was curry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> well, Bethany, we're so excited to have you as part of this conversation. There's so many interesting things that I want to dig into with you. Um, but right from the beginning, I want to tell you how grateful we are for you to be here to take the time and, uh, and bless us with your story um, and any of the things that come out of this conversation. And um, I'd love to just start with having you kind of give us some background for you. You've done some really interesting things, specifically in the e-course uh, realm with some really top leaders that uh, are doing amazing things in the world. So you kind of got a backstage view to some of that, which is in and of itself interesting. I'd love to hear about that, but also just your, your life, your, your background, the growing up, uh, anything that stands out or that you feel is unique to our conversation. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Um, it's my first podcast, so you'll have to, uh, forgive me if I'm not super smooth on the, on the, uh, airwaves here, but I will try my best, but yeah. So, um, (laughs) well, thank you. So, um, my background, I, I, so I, I, where do I start? So I was, uh, I grew up with deaf parents and I think that really kind of informed so much of how I operate and how I live my life and my, my outlook on things, which, you know, oftentimes I, f- I feel like is, um, you know, it's definitely unique. And, uh, when you, I'm, I'm involved in an organization called, uh, CODA international, uh, it's uh, children of deaf adults international. And so it's actually been really interesting in my adult years, um, connecting with with CODAs all around the world, literally from Hong Kong and Nigeria and France, just all over. And it's been amazing to sort of have the same, um, a lot of the same experiences that completely transcend culture um, and just humanity. And uh, and so for me, that's been really, really formative and healing, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also just given me, I think, more of a an interesting approach to life that comes from more of a place of curiosity. Cause 
I didn't have parents to answer my questions. Uh, I often had to provide them. So um, that I think just kind of gave me this, this regular practice of asking questions and being inquisitive about things. And so it's actually been, I've been reflecting the last few days on this podcast experience and, um, and thinking about how I have tended to be the person that asks the questions. So to be on the other side of it is actually pretty uncomfortable. And it, it, (laughs) so this is actually exciting. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always a game for uncomfortable situations because I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just, it's just good training for really overcoming the the struggles of life that, or the blind spots, you know, that you guys often point out um, that we have so much in our lives. And so, um, so this is just an interesting uh, experience to be having and to be on the other side of it. So thank you guys for, for doing this. Yeah, of course. I can, I, I can attest to your um, natural question asking or your, your curious, your curious nature. You and I got on the phone to start to talk about the possibility of doing some work together. And I think it turned into an hour conversation of you asking me questions of my recent faith (laughs) transition. And you were so, you're so good at it and so interested and so curious. And um, I'm wondering, A, is, do you feel like that is a symptom of growing up with deaf parents? And in addition, if it is, great. And I'd love to hear about that. But also you mentioned, you know, this coda, which is getting an opportunity to get in touch with other people from a similar background. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for you, what, what are the unique, um, I don't know if challenges are the right word, but like just the unique aspects of life that we may not know about that we may not even be considering um, that you experience and others uh, in this organization experienced. Well, I think uh, a lack of motive oftentimes, I, I, feel, I still feel naive at times when I'm in situations where I'm like, oh, you actually had some, you know, some shady intentions there. And it just doesn't occur to me because my parents are, are honestly very childlike. And so I know there have been instances where maybe I've been in a situation where people just really thought I had an intention and, um, and couldn't fathom that I was just genuinely interested, <laughs> curious about things. And I think that is um, something that I find with a lot of CODAs is that there's just a much more, just an openness because so many, you know, oftentimes I think uh, CODAs are, are in the situation of facilitating conversation communication. And so that kind of, you know, put me at the front seat at like six, seven years old, correcting my, <laughs> my mom's emails or letters or conducting you know, business transactions and, or, or even interpreting for, uh, my student or was it the, uh, my, my teacher parent conferences, I'd have to interpret as like a third grader, completely inappropriate. And they're looking back now, but, um, but I think because of that, um, there, that, that just put me in a situation to be much more self-sufficient. And, and in some ways I think, you know, for, for better, for worse, mostly a really, really good thing, but you know, there's trade-offs like with anything. Um, but I think some things that maybe people aren't aware of is just really just the lack of accessibility and communication things that don't occur to people. Um, so I was involved in a, in a nonprofit for a, an organization called Wonder Women Tech for a bit. And really just kind of my, one of my goals in being involved was just to really showcase the inclusion of deaf people and their lack of 
accessibility to communication. So I made it a point to bring in other CODA friends who were professional interpreters um, and they volunteered their time to interpret. And we had deaf, uh, we had some major deaf actors and, and, you know, movers and shakers who came and spoke. And it was just sort of, to me, when I think of representation, I don't think of it in terms of color or sexuality, but really an actual, when it comes to people with, with disabilities or uh, not even disabilities, but just, you know, they, there's, there's different challenges that they face. And so I try not to use disabilities as I know that can be a little bit, uh, you know, politically charged for some people, but, um, but there are, you know, obviously there's, there's limitations to, to the information that they get. And so I think to me, um, when I explain to people, Hey, you know, just something to consider, think about having an interpreter at your conference or being more intentional about subtitling things or transcribing things. Um, you know, even like right now, my sister is involved with, um, she's a, she's an interpreter and a, and an, a teacher, she teaches uh, high schoolers uh, sign language and she's also involved in ministry and she is now working with the Orange County Sheriff's Department in Orange County, California and working with them on how to deal with the, the most appropriate way to deal with deaf citizens, right? Because there's countless cases of deaf people being shot because they didn't hear a command to stop. And it's just these kinds of things that people don't think about. It doesn't occur to them where if somebody's not responding to you, it might be that they just don't hear you. It's an invisible disability, you know? So like, for example, I was at Costco one time and I'm walking by with my mom and this guy's, you know, at a table trying to sell her chocolates and she's walking by and he's like, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. And she's just, she keeps going. And I just see him look around and there's this other lady looking at him and they look at each other like, yeah, like how rude. And I was so mad. (laughs) I had to run over and be like, she's deaf. She can't hear you. And he was like, oh, but like, you know, I could tell they were like, what a bee, you know? And, and it's just sort of these instances, this happens all the time at, 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 you know, at stores and constantly having to intervene and be like, oh, sorry, she can't hear you. She's deaf. And it's just, it doesn't occur to people. And, and for good reason, you know, most people don't have that experience. And so it's, it's an issue that comes up in every facet of life um, daily for me. So I think it's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain at times, but I feel like there's been such a massive movement of awareness that's happening. I think it's gone mainstream at this point with sort of deaf awareness. And now we've got, you know, we've actually got interpreters on screen who are, you know, interpreting for, for different news events that sort of happen and that sort of thing. So I think that's, to me, the biggest thing is just being aware and mindful of um, they're just, you know, something as simple as people not responding might be because they can't hear you. Um, and it's not just people who are deaf for, you know, in the deaf community, but people who are losing their hearing, you know, and for medical reasons or whatever. Um, so you just never know. And so I think because that I have this hyper awareness of if people who might have different sort of physical limitations. So um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And what's, oh, go ahead, Dan. No, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing that's striking to me as you talk about this experience, which I didn't even consider um, when we were thinking of, you know, when I was, when I wanted to have you on is that this, it seems like, and we were just last couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation with uh, Rabbi Steve Leader, and we talked about this very thing where, you know, leadership is often just doing the, like what's right in the, in the, in the fire. Right. He, he tells right. this great joke about being the, anyway, they'll have to go back and listen to that episode if they want to hear the joke, but leadership doesn't always look like an intentional step into leadership. Sometimes it's just, there's a fire around you and something has to be done. Mm-hmm. And, 
so it strikes me that maybe like you didn't say this, but what I heard was this situation with your parents required you to be in a leadership role very, very early in your life. That's a very, very good point. <laughs> I mean, I, that's a very, yeah, it's very true. It's sort of like, uh, yeah, I had a, I went to a Christian college and I, I took this missions class and my professor always said, you know, the mission field is between your two feet. And that's kind of what I think about of leadership is it's between your two feet. It's if you're leading from the back, you know, and I feel like that's, that's why this is also kind of interesting for me, this experience of something as simple as being on a podcast has got me thinking of like, huh, like this is kind of uncomfortable for me. And what, what do I have to, to share? But I recognize there have been countless instances where I've had to be a leader, but I hadn't really kind of viewed it in that way. It's just sort of like, pull up your bootstraps and just get it done kind yeah, of mentality. That's exactly what the rabbi was talking about. It's like, you find yourself in the middle of it and you deal with it. Yeah. You don't run from it. Leaders don't run from it. You, okay, we got to handle this. So. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I would agree. I think a lot of codas definitely have that sort of self-sufficiency or self-starter attitude because it's like, well, and that's not the case for everyone, for a lot of codas, but for my my specific situation, I didn't have parents to ask questions. And so it was just never even an option. And I just had to go and find it myself, you know, so. But, you know, and I think that's something you also did with the, the nonprofit you were involved in, um, the with the children, what was it? Child Lives Matter. Yeah, child's life, ch children's lives matter. Is that right? Yeah, well, that was super interesting. Um, so this is the first time I've kind of publicly really talked about it. It was sort of a faceless organization, but um, a few of my girlfriends and I, um, we, we've just been seeing, you know, all this stuff about child trafficking um, and, you know, without getting too much in sort of the conspiracy theory uh, world, there was obviously a lot of, a lot of that going on in Hollywood, which I feel like is one of the, the most, the biggest cesspools of trafficking, um, and the normalization of pedophilia that I'm seeing in the media. And, and I have my degree in film and, you know, as a code, I'm just like, I'm very aware of the visual world and what I see and the, the, the dots that I have to connect. And so for me, um, what I thought was interesting. So last year we had our, our black lives matter, you know, the, all that stuff that was happening right at the beginning of COVID and it dawned on me. I was like, why aren't we having marches for missing children? And so I created this little flyer and I sent it to a bunch of pages like 10 o'clock at night. I'm not thinking anything. And I'm like, well, let's see if anybody shows up. I'd be awesome. We got like 10 or 20 people in Hollywood to just march around and start just making it a thing. Right. Um, and next thing I know, I wake up in the morning and it's gone viral on a ton of pages. And then it just, it just starts making its movements around. And, um, and then, so there was a couple of people I was involved with and in, in sort of initially putting this on. And it was so interesting, I guess, navigating the whole experience. It's, it was surreal because what happened was we wound up showing up and I kid you not, we had probably over well, well over a thousand to 2000 people that showed up. Wow. And you didn't hear about it on the news. Some employee at CNN in, in Hollywood let us in their lobby. So there was a giant crowd of us with signs just saying, where are the children, you know, and, and, um, and not, not a word on the media. And then it became this, it was, it, it was this organic movement that truly happened worldwide. And I had a friend who, who organized it 
been, I'm not kidding about uh, over 200 cities, I think around the world. And we all happened to do it on the same weekend. Um, Cause I think it was just like the spark, you know, it just, it just went viral in its own organic way, a true organic movement. And, um, and so we started doing a series of marches and, and there was one guy that I was kind of working with and I won't say his name, but he, he, he ran with it. He kept taking our stuff, repurposing it and making himself sort of the face of it. It was really bizarre. Um, and it turned out he like legitimately had like a manager or handler who was directing this whole thing. It was so weird. And meanwhile, me and my friends are just, you know, we're doing our own sort of like moms who, who were genuinely concerned about what was happening. Um, and we just continued to show up and, and weirdly enough, the feds got involved and then we had some Freemasons, <laughs> high level Freemasons show. It was crazy. It was so bizarre. Let's get involved. Well, um, there's this thing called, I don't know how much it sort of Illuminati kind of stuff or weird kind of, you know, sort of stuff that gets involved, but there's a white paper that, the, that, um, that was written by our government about it's called COINTELPRO and it's this, this way of co-opting an organic movement. And it's something that they've openly written about, about hijacking grassroots movements and infiltrating in different ways. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of it's probably experimentation and sort of psycho, you know, psychoanalysis of, of the people and psychological warfare and that sort of thing. And, um, and like I said, it was a truly an organic movement. Um, and the way, I mean, I think me and my friends, we were fine because we were just like, we truly were about the children. And then they started trying to, to connect it with this thing called Q. I don't know if, if you guys have heard of it, but they, they basically, what I watched happen in the news was so crazy in terms of how they tried to almost gaslight it and minimize it that we just took a step back because we're like, this is truly about the children, but there's just kind of weird, nefarious things at play. And so we just kind of took a step back and, um, and now we're, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing it back up again because child trafficking is, I think the ultimate currency of all kinds of nefarious things. And so that's something that, you know, we need, we need to talk more about and to normalize. And I, and I, and I do think it's become a mainstream conversation. It's just not something that we hear very much about in sort of the mass media, but, um, the conversations I'm having with everybody, everybody seems to be aware of the issue and, so I think it's just at a point now where it's, it's, it's um, I think it's going to start really reaching critical mass soon if it hasn't already. Um, so that's kind of my, yeah, it was a crazy experience and, and, but also really kind of exciting and it's just surreal. But um, at the end of the day, you know, filling a, whole, a gap, you see something, a problem, you step in. I mean, it's what we were talking about, just answering the call. Yeah. 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 And, and I would have never thought a little flyer I designed went viral and literally garnered, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world together amongst, you know, a lot of other people, but just that little spark, I guess, you know, that definitely was sort of a leadership moment. And it's, it was something that I didn't, I didn't, unique, I didn't expect. Your unique gift is design. There's no doubt about it. And <laughs> we've, we've experienced it and it is pretty remarkable what you can do with design and to get people to read it and pay attention to it. So thank you. I, I mean, I spent years trying to understand things visually. So I think right. it's just my, my work now is just, uh, it's now an expression of, of all the years I spent just, you know, grinding away, trying to figure out all kinds of things. Well, it's interesting to me that you say, oh, Adrian, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, 
uh, real quick question, um, just out of my naivete. So Bethany, both your parents were deaf. Were they your biological parents? Yeah, yeah. So, so cure my naivete here. So two deaf parents, how often did two deaf parents have deaf kids versus two deaf parents have kids that are, can hear? Uh, about 90% of all children born to deaf adults are hearing. So it's actually a very small percentage that wind up being deaf. So you're talking about literally millions of people out there and there's not really a, an official count. There's just estimations, but it's a very interesting subculture. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's one of those kind of, you don't, I mean, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. How many of the people in CODA have dual deaf parents versus single? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't know if we've had a survey on that, but there's, um, there's a decent amount that have, I'm sure, a single deaf parent. Um, I've known a few. And, um, but again, those numbers, the research just isn't there. You know, even, even ASL, American Sign Language, wasn't, didn't even become an official language, I don't think, until like the 70s or 80s. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, generations of deaf people who basically developed pigeon sign, right? They, they kind of made up their own home signs. And so the actual standardization, formalization of, of ASL it was really pretty relatively new. And actually, interesting, interestingly enough, it's based on, um, on Martha's Vineyard sign language. So at one point when Martha's Vineyard was originally colonized, at the highest peak, one out of every four people was deaf back in like, the, I don't know, 17 or 1800s. And so to live there, you had to know how to sign. And they had deaf police officers or they were completely, you know, they were completely grafted in, in into the culture and community. And so that's something that I'd really like to see more of. But the whole, the whole deaf culture, deaf boarding schools that used to exist and, and just kind of hearing stories from my parents and other friends' parents um, of what they experienced growing up. And, and now with technology, you know, fun fact, actually, texting was developed for deaf people. And, um, and I remember my mom <laughs> telling me one time, she goes, why do hearing people text each other? You know, you guys can, can talk to each other and hear each other's voices. I was like, oh, God bless you. It's just, people are, people Let me are just, ask, right? I mean, think about it. Yeah. Why, why texting, you can talk to each other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would say, why are you buying water in a bottle when you can go turn on the faucet? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Part of why I asked first, first off, I'm interested in the, in the details of it, but part of why I asked too or pointed out because, you know, the theme of, some of our conversations this morning have been about making, you know, making the most of the suffering you've been through. Mm -hmm. Suffering can come in all shapes and sizes. And obviously there is some suffering in your story and maybe a lot of suffering, you know, that's up to you, or at least I don't know how you relate to it, but the difficulty challenge took more from you to, I mean, all those stories about you and your parents growing up, you know, you had to adult really quickly, um, which is a form of suffering. And, um, you know, and then to be able to now be willing to really translate how that crafted you to be into a gift for other people is something really that we're championing here. And, you know, as a one way of you leading without even maybe even have, you might not have even put the stamp on it like that before. But, you know, that that is you know, to translate kind of the, the, the suffering, the loss, the lot, you know, the lack of opportunity into now you being able to see things that aren't there and being willing to speak things that other people might not is a huge gift. 
Thank you. I mean, yeah, I think there's always, I, I, I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm very much a, a believer in the pra- extremely practical nature of the scriptures. And I think, you know, my experience of, of the Bible is that for me, it's been incredibly practical and valuable because I feel like it literally informs every part of my life. And that goes down to like what you're saying about the things that you're speaking into existence. And, you know, that can be sort of manifested or, or sorry, excuse me, interpreted into, you know, sort of, sort of a new age or esoteric perspective. But I think there's absolute truth in that. And this is scriptural that what you speak into existence is, is very, it's very real. And, uh, and, you know, Dan, I think you and I have talked about that, the, the verse in the scriptures that talk about the power of life and death is in the tongue. And I'm very, very mindful of that um, and how I speak to people. Am I taking life or am I giving life by what I'm saying? And so that keeps me convicted in, in being mindful, not just in what I'm speaking, but my, my, the posture of my heart and my intention. Um, and so I think for me, it was, I benefited a lot from from parents who were very childlike because um, there wasn't really ever any, any real sort of malicious intent, um, but sort of a lot of aloofness and a lot of lack of self-awareness, but in a, in a really, and oftentimes a really good way, like, like I said, like a child, right? There's that sort of natural, complete, just humility that will, you know, moves me to tears if I think enough about it. But I think living in that way and growing up in that way has has put me in really interesting positions where I've, you know, I've, I was, I was brought in one time on a shoot with um, a really high level, with the CEO of a major, major organization in Orange County, multi-billion dollar company. And I was specifically asked by the B- VP to, to come in and just, just to shoot the shit with him um, and make him comfortable because I was, you know, m- meanwhile, I'm just like in the marketing department. And I just thought it was so interesting. And, and, you know, he starts to confide in me, you know, he's just like, you know, I look around sometimes and I just feel like, how did I get here? And this man is, you know, insanely successful. And he goes, I still feel like a 12 year old kid, you know, riding my bike with my dog and my rifle back and, you know, that behind a river in Alabama. <laughs> and, and I just remember thinking, wow, the imposter syndrome really does exist. And, and, um, and I think for me, because it, my, my posture is oftentimes like true curiosity and, and, an inquisitive nature because I just feel like I can't get enough, I don't know, information at times or not just can't get enough, but I'm very genuinely want to hear people's experiences and perspectives because I feel like it enriches sort of the tapestry of my life and helps me sort of equip myself for dealing with situations and different kinds of people that come across my way and how can I bless them and, and, and leave them better than I found them. Um, and so I think that, you know, that often is my, my goal with people is, Am I, am I bringing life to them? What do you find uh, the biggest challenge or blocker for you when working with people or doing anything? What do you come up against? Hmm. You mean like in conflict or in, in working? Like, or? like when you want to get something done or you're looking to accomplish something. Because... Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but the work that I've done and when I work with people is usually the blockers are, <clears throat> they're common. Like I, they, they repeat themselves. It's way of thinking, right? What are some of the things that you need, you find yourself struggling with over and over again, like patterned? Do you, are you aware of that? 
Well, you mean like, well, in terms of sort of dealing with conflict, I feel, and I think this is a, a, a CODA thing oftentimes is the struggle of just doing it yourself. And, you know, Adrian, you kind of talked about the suffering and I, I, that is very true. You know, like I remember in high school, you know, going to my room and crying by myself because my grandpa passed away and re- remembering, you know, my, can't, my parents can't really be there for me emotionally. And that was my entire life. So yes, there is a level of, you know, wanting to take things on myself and not asking. And that's something I still really struggle with. And that was something I was just talking to another code of friend of mine is that, I, and I, it's, it's something that I think is always going to be a pain there, but it's mm-hmm. something to, you know, sort of redirect that energy and that, 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 uh, sadness or that, that suffering into something really powerful. Um, and I, I know for me, it took me years to learn to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So when I was in college, I was, I was involved in a women's ministry and this was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life. And so I was in this women's prayer ministry and I remember it was finals week, you know, we went out to dinner and it was, um, and I was just so stressed. I had personal stuff going on at home with my mom and, and I had two or three major finals that I needed to prepare for that. I was not, I was completely behind on and we're at this dinner and I'm just thinking, I got to get out of here. I, I, I need to go home and just like cry for a minute and then just get this, these projects done. And I was, you know, uncharacteristically quiet at dinner and, and I'm, I'm with, you know, seven other women and we finished dinner and we walk around and um, as we're heading to our cars, we were next to the Fullerton train station, which is right next to the, the restaurant. And they're like, Hey, let's just go check this out. This is a cool historical thing. And I'm just like, ah, I want to get out of here. So we go in and I think they planned it and they physically turned me and they sat me down and formed the semicircle around me. And they were like, Beth, what is going on? And I just bawled. And that was the first time I literally had cried, I think in front of anybody that I could remember mm-hmm. other than, you know, when I was a kid and I, and I, I remembered thinking, wow, I, this is actually really not that bad. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, I've let other people cry in front of me. So, and I was an RA at the time. So, you know, I had plenty of, plenty of residents who were crying and, and coming to me in confidence about things. And, um, and then I just thought, wow, how arrogant I've been <laughs> to be so proud that like, I've never cried in front of anybody. And then when I wept, I realized it, like, it really opened up the floodgates for me. And now I can cry at the drop of a hat in front of people and I have no problems. But, but at the time that the emotional availability wasn't there. And I think I masked a lot of it with asking questions, you know, like you were saying, and, and then realizing like, wow, this is actually really, this was, it was a major, I think, turning point for me in terms of self-awareness and maturity to, to be able to open up and not, you know, take pride in such trivial things like not crying in front of people. That's, that doesn't serve you. So another thing occurred to me was if that's the case, because it seems I kind of was trying to put myself in your shoes and that being self-sufficient is a big deal. Uh Like it's not like you think about it. It's like, that's what I do because if I don't, nobody else will. And I wonder how often that becomes a blind spot where you, you can become overwhelmed and don't, don't ask for help. Or don't like this if you're not going to show because it kind of goes along with what you just shared as well, right? So people don't get to know what's wanted and needed for you and how they can contribute. Like you and and so you they, you may be out of touch with a lot larger scale of abundance than you know abundant uh, uh, resource than what you 
would normally think is there if you're just on the, I've got to do this on the Bethany's terms because nobody else will, right? Yeah. And that that's that's actually something that's been coming up for me lately is I feel like you're just, you know, I think reinforcing what God's been, I think, revealing to me, which is learning to ask and learning to scale. Cause even just within my own business, I'm like, man, I could, I can do all this stuff on my own, but then it's sort of, was that, that proverb, that African proverb? Like, if you want to, if you want to go far, do it yourself. If you want to, uh, what was the second part? I'm totally blanking. Um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, oh, go ahead. that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to go fast. Yeah, exactly. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with people. And, uh, and I think for me, there's, that's something that I definitely need to start sort of walking into is the, the abundance mindset. And also, like you said, Dan is like learning to ask for help and seeking outside help. Um, not just outside counsel, but actual help for, you know, yeah. my own business and that sort of thing. And like, well, it's a form of questioning, right? <clears throat> Your inquiry is one thing, but a request is a, is a, is a very, is a form of a question too. It's like, will you, can we do this? You know, like, to be able to provoke action from other people. People don't realize that action becomes language, right? Language is action. Like if I said, you know, would you pick up that pen? Or I, I remember we ran this experiment when I was a young man and we were doing phone sales. And I remember this guy said to me, look, when the person answers the phone, I just want you to call anybody, just dial somebody on the line. When they answer the phone say, hey, this is Dan Takini. Would you get a pen? I want to tell you something. And watch how many people actually do that. Before they ask you, who? what do you mean, Dan Takini, who are you? Every single person I call, at least 10, picked up a pen and then asked me, they'd say, wait a minute, go get a pen, come back and then ask me, who are you? What do you want? But, you know, huh. the, the power of language is so, uh, of, of request, right? right. Ask, you know, I think about, you were talking about scripture, ask, seek, and knock. You know, you got oh. this down. Asking is kind of the, way to build that team, right? You can go farther. Man, you're blowing my mind right now. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in that way. The, the, that's, that's the half, half of the equation, right? It's the inquis or the inquiry. The other half is the, is the request. Yep. And uh, I had, I hadn't thought of it in that way. That's a really good point. Enforcement. There's, it's like, that's, it's interesting because a lot of times I work with, we we work with go-getters, right? And, They'll say, hey, you know, can you work with my head of staff or can you work with my CFO or CE or um, COO? We can't seem to get certain things done. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, whenever I get in there, it's because they're good at framing the issue. They know what they want, but they don't ask or they don't enforce. They, they don't ask for what they want specifically mm-hmm. from their team and from the organization and or when they do, they don't follow up and enforce like, well, this, this, this is due by how's it going? What do you need? What's it going to take? Like, it's all, it's always about forwarding that. And when we start doing it, they're amazed at how fast the thing starts to move, but particularly entrepreneurs, they've got to be good at asking. Right. Well, I guess that's, that's a, that's a good point. Like I know that's what you guys do is sort of in your, in coaching people is you deal with high performers, but, that's completely different, completely different realm than managing people. And to me, yeah. that's like what you're saying. Sort of the managing, it requires 
your requests. It requires you to ask. Exactly. Because the performer, you put them in a management position and they can look terrible. All of a sudden they go from being a star. I like what the rabbi said a couple of weeks ago, you know, uh, Magic Johnson was a great player, but not a great coach. And probably Mm -hmm. because he he talked about, he expected everybody to know what he could, like, why can't they just do what I did? Right. Mm -hmm. Versus, Let's understand exactly what they need. Let's find out. Let's inquire and then make the request. Hey, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Would you do this? You know, I need more from you than what you've been willing to give. Right. Those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I I just thinking about that because it occurred to me like that could be. If I'm putting myself in your shoes, that would be something I, I imagine I'd be up against at times because I'd be so used to being the performer, getting it done. Mm-hmm. looking ahead, making sure my parents are prepared, making sure my life is organized, you know, and, and not expecting someone to help because they have, I've never had that before. You know, so just, yeah. that would be a common blind spot. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a frame of reference I've lacked. It's a baseline that every child needs. And, and I don't feel like I really got, so it's still a foreign concept for me to ask for things um, even when people ask me, it's, I, I, I can see in myself, even subconsciously, like, no, nope, I got it. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just going to. That's your ally. You know, when you hear, nope, I got it. You mm-hmm. can stop. I mean, that's what I call the ally, right? Like it mm-hmm. becomes the ally. Well, oh no, I got it. Well, do I, I mean, is, could I use help? What might make this even easier? Right. Who could I talk? But it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes I just feel like, I don't even know what questions to ask. I'm just yeah. like. I'll figure it out. I, <laughs> I'll just, it's a, there's a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, Marie Forleo. She's a really big oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Business thought leader. She has this great phrase. It, I think her mom, her mom told her and it was, everything is figure outable. And I think that's been my subconscious sort of mantra my entire life, but I, I'm sure at times the detriment, you know, of myself, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of abundance I've missed out on. Um, you know, I lean well, right? Yeah, even, well, I mean, gosh. I, I, I was sitting with her the other day and she was working with the, these guys at the, uh, the county. She's working with a surveyor and she's getting ready to split the property. And I, I noticed, I've, and then I listened to her on the phone with an agent uh, booking tickets and she has, she'll get through something and then she'll say, is there something I ought to be asking that I don't know about? Is there something I should be aware of that maybe I'm not aware that I don't pay attention to? I haven't paid attention to here. Is there anything I should know? I'm, every time I've seen her do that, it's opened up a new level of understanding. She actually found out that one of the tickets she thought she booked for me, the agent didn't get it down. And when she asked that question at the end, it opened up that whole thing. And then with a the surveyor, same thing. We found out things we never knew. So it's like, even including an extra question, like, am I missing anything? Is there something that you think could help here that I'm not paying attention to? And I, I'll tell you, man, I, I, I keep saying to myself, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. I want that because there's so many times I'll get into a project and go, I'll get out of a meeting, go down the road a little bit and go, Shit, I didn't ask that question. Why didn't I just think of the, you know, write it down and then ask it later or ask that one question. Is there something I ought to know? which I did today with a couple of my meetings and it really worked out well. But That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty inspirational. So, I mean, th- those are the kinds of like rules of thumb that I feel like everybody should be taught growing up and just rules of communication. Yeah. And for me, it's almost, I actually feel like it's almost maybe in some ways the opposite for me. And we've talked about this yeah. where, and it's a CODA thing, 
the, 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 the habit of continually over contextualizing things like, you know, like we're telling a story and then we just give way more information that's needed. And then sometimes people's eyes glaze over and I'm like, no, 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 but this is important just so you know (laughs) where I'm coming from or like you understand, you know, the situation and, um, and, and, uh, and most people are just like, you could have just summarized that in like a minute. (laughs) Yeah. And you're, but you're naturally curious. So requesting is a natural part of curiosity. Right. Well, but, but like you said, though, it's, it's, it's the inquiry. There's a lot of inquiry, but the, the actual asking or request for myself, completely yeah. uncomfortable. It yeah. just doesn't even dawn on me. And then when it does dawn on me, I'm like, do I really need their help? I could probably just do this myself. And you're, I mean, for the listeners, they don't realize how gifted you are, but I, I if you, Bethany is one of the, she's the best, one of the best layout you know, artists and, uh, She's just a graphic artist of, of the highest order. I mean, she's done work with some of, why don't you name a few of the, the people you've done work with that people would know? Uh, well, thank you for that. That was very kind. Um, so I, I well, kind of like you guys, been a hired gun for, for a lot of different people and a lot of different organizations. And so this is kind of my first sort of public outing of, uh, of who I am. But um, I, I built courses for Brendan Burchard, who's a high performance executive kind of not executive, but but yeah. human potential coach kind of um, Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Adrian Mishler. She's a really big yoga instructor. Um, Dr. Mark Hyman and a bunch of others. Um, I've gotten right to do some really cool things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I know it's uncomfortable for you to say that, but as an entrepreneur starting your own, graphics company you these are things that you know you ought to own yeah self-promotion self-promotion is a hard one for me yeah i've I've spent my whole life just kind of how do you you know it's self-promotion well i know it's necessary it's not it's not that it's even so much like a a oh this feels like super prideful i don't i don't I think it's just, it's necessary. You have to get your message out there. I mean, obviously I work in the marketing world. I've worked in film and I recognize the power of, you know, of all these different mediums of putting your message out there. I just know for me, it's been, it's, it's, it's a hesitation because it also feels like they have so much to share, but it's like, where do I even start? Um, And slash also, I, I, I find myself, wanting to work on other people's things rather than my own thing at times, which I think is uh, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a manifestation of, of childhood issues <laughs> that I'm working on, but I think I'm, I'm aware of it enough at this point that I, I feel like I have a healthy relationship with it. It's just like recognizing, okay, where's this coming from? And this is something I learned a lot from you, Dan, in, in your training years ago, is it, and we've talked about this too, is where it never dawned on me to ask myself questions about things, you know, I'd ask questions of people all the time, but until I went through Dan's training, I was like, oh my gosh, it, why do I feel that way? What's, why is, why, why do I have anxiety about this? And literally it's just the most simple, simple things. It just literally never dawned on me. And it was, it became this conscious thing that for me was so powerful. Um, because like I said, it's sort of like, it just, I didn't have that growing up and, um, and it served me in a lot of ways, but you know, I remember Dan, one of the most profound things you ever shared 
in, in one of your trainings was, was the word Egypt, right. And how it has a double meaning. The etymology of it means, uh, it means, a was it fortress? Yep. It's right? a stronghold. It means stronghold, stronghold. Right. And that it, it served the Israelites at first as a place of refuge and protection during the, um, the great famine. And then it became their imprisonment. And so I remember you saying, you know, the things that often served us as children, especially people who've maybe grown up in abuse and whatnot, served them well to sort of shut down emotionally. But then as an adult, it became this sort of imprisonment. And I, I feel like that was something that I became like consciously aware of after going through your training was like, wow, the, la- the, the inability to be emotionally available until, you know, I went through the training. I was like, wow, I, I, and it's not like I really went through like abuse or anything, but it was just that. Yeah, but just. But you, you know, absolutely. I grew up in a very tough situation too, and that's how come I use that is because the things that used to work for me in a, in a household where, the, you know, my mother was, you know, psychologically not stable, and my dad was not there, wouldn't work in a married life, right? It just drive her right out, and right. couldn't raise a family with him. So those are things I had to learn to, you know, to use as allies. Things like. Like I wouldn't want to come home because I never liked going home because what I had to face. And a long time, you know, it took me some time to wonder, why don't I want to go home with my wife when my kid, my child, my first child was born? And, you know, what was up with me? And then as I started going home, it became a place of refuge and regeneration. But I had to, you know, it was like by doing it and I started becoming aware of what my demons were and, and they began to become allies rather than enemies. Like when I noticed they came up, that would mean, oh, you know what? There's probably something for me to be curious about here. Maybe something to ask for help with here uh, to br- you know, bring into light and, and see if Eileen can help me with it, right? And that's what opened up our relationship significantly because now I was asking for help where she used to say, there's something up with you. Now I'd say, you know, there's something up with me. I, I, here's what it is. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be home. and I don't even know why. I think it's related back here and... But I love being with you. And once I get here, I love, you know, so if you can give me a few minutes when I get home just to get myself in, because it takes me about five. I, and when I'm conscious of it, about 10 minutes, I can be hooked right in and I'll jump in and do whatever I can. And that opens a ton, you know. Wow. So. And my, my, what I'm thinking about here, too, which is really powerful. And Bethany, thanks, by the way. You're doing great. Um, thanks for being so open and honest and generous with yourself. Absolutely. Thanks. You know, it, it is, I, I know it's been true for me, is that like whatever, like the, the level with which I believe my fears will be the boundaries by which I have to operate. Say that again, that's really good. Like the level, I, and I'm just making it up, but something like this, <laughs> like the level to which I believe my fears, because I have a bunch of fears, you know, and I can have them. I can see them and listen to them, but very different from when I believe them. Like I think they're so, and I believe the forecast that they are. Fear is usually a forecast, right? So um, mm-hmm. the level of which I believe my fears become the boundaries with, within which I must operate. So like if I'm scared of, like one of mine is that I'm dumb. I'm not very smart. Mm-hmm. If I believe that, if I believe it, then I end up operating in such a way to try to prove, like I, therefore there are things I can't do. Mm-hmm. I'm just not smart enough to do that. I can't do that. Or what shows up a ton is I end up living to try to prove myself smart because I believe I'm not smart or if Mm -hmm. I'm scared that I'm not smart, I end up living to be smart. Like if I'm talking too much in a conversation, I wonder what am I up to? Right. Like if I'm telling extra stories about how, you know, about 
philosophical this or this quote or this quote. I'm like, what am I doing over here? What game am I playing? And I might not be, I might not know it, but I'm like playing a game called don't be dumb hmm. or don't let them know how dumb I think I am. Probably even more hmm. like that. You know, or it's just like, hmm. so I get it. And by the way, anybody that's a solopreneur listening to this gets what you're talking about. Like the fear of self-promotion. Yeah. Um, and that's why I said, who said it's that? Because, you know, the obvious answer was you did. <laughs> no, it, could be, yeah. it could be, maybe it's self-promotion. Maybe it's owning reality. Maybe it's revealing, you know, resource. Maybe mm-hmm. it's opportunity. Maybe it's, you need this, come find me. Maybe it's, I'd love to serve. Can I show you how I've served before? You know, maybe it's, I thrive, I thrive in high stakes environments. That might be what it'd be. It might be, I'm cool, listen how cool I am, which is actually, I don't think that's demonic. But more importantly, whatever else it is, is gonna be up to you as well. And other people might think you're thinking, you know, you're awesome. And, you know, we don't, I don't get to control what anybody thinks about me. Here yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think you're, you're right. And one of the things I learned from Dan's training was, was people's tendency sometimes may project things. So, so to what you're saying, I think I, I did struggle with that. And I, and I do try to question myself too, if I'm in a situation in a social situation where I'm talking and, and I want to be mindful of other people too. And I had a couple people who've told me, you know, like you're talking too much, like you gotta, like, it's just, you know, like you're, you're, you're hogging the spotlight or it kind of came across to them as whatever. And I had to start checking with other people. And I was like, my intention was really not to hog the spotlight or, or, you know, whatever, but I had several people who were like, no, not at all. Like I'm really engaged in what you're saying. And I would tell them like, Hey, if I'm talking too much, please tell me I need feedback because my parents didn't tell me and, you know, make a joke out of it, but it's kind of true. You know, it's like, I, I want to be mindful, but over time I kind of realized like, you know what? It's sort of like a, what Dan would talk about. You sort of, you try on, you know, is this, is this true? And I started to find like, no, it, it isn't. And then it, it, it actually helped the relationships I was in because then I called out the people that I was telling me that loved ones. And I would tell them, you know, I think you're just projecting onto me that, if you were in my situation or if you were in my shoes, you might feel like you're hogging the spotlight. Cause you've got like a, some, maybe some, some issues there with like wanting to be, you know, the, the, the popular one, not that I am, but I'm just saying like the projection. Cause for me, I'm not trying to, to hog the spotlight. Like I genuinely want to give value in the conversation. And, and so I kind of had to call out some people just like, you know, don't, don't project that onto me. Like you need to use your voice and so I, I think that was kind of, it's always sort of for me finding that balance of, I, I want to be mindful that I'm, I'm operating from a place of humility, but also owning who I am in the confidence of who, you know, of who I am, because I know that my intention is not malicious and, you know, and, and at least I, I try to be mindful of that. And, um, and so, f- you know, that's, that's also, I guess, maybe sort of a, a leadership trait that people I think could use more in their life is, you know it was, it was told to me enough times that it really became a real issue for me for, for years until I got kind of got enough, you know, had enough of it. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is maybe not my, my issue. Maybe this is your issue. And, and that was something I had to sort of attribute to Dan's training was, I don't think I would have said that had I not really kind of experienced sort of a frame, a framework for boundaries even right. And and communication and, and boundaries for yourself and feeling like this is not, not right. 
Well, a few thoughts here. By the way, as she keeps talking about Dan's training, uh, the, the, the version of Dan's training that's alive now that she's talking about is called the Revenant Process. And we'll probably be having those coming up in the months to come. So keep your ears perked if you're interested in this type of very deep interpersonal training, which we love doing together at, at TNG. Um, but the, you know, the, my, my experience and sound, it's that, that here's what you just said is an example of, and even I think most leaders that are in your spot, the, the big gamble is, can I define who I am and what I'm up to? And then am I willing just to stand right there, fully own it and be that out there in culture, out there in the market, out there with potential clients? Can I just go be exactly the fullness that I am and then see what happens? Because most people don't. Most people try to find a version of themselves that's socially acceptable or acceptable to the market and just go chameleon them their way into being that, which, you know what, what that works in some industries for some amount of time. But what you're talking about, and I just, it dawns on me because I can share, I can share with that kind of shift for you. Cause you know, I've been like way too intense for most people, most of my life, even for myself, most of my life, it's like seeing my intensity as you know a problem instead of just owning it like oh i'm just an intense guy i like the high dive i do i like the high dive i like the deep end i like deep conversations i like no bullshit i dig conflict i think it's interesting you know um i like messing with people i like being messed with i like talking to strangers i like whatever i went out you know and had a conversation with a homeless guy outside yesterday when he's hanging outside outside you know i and you know he's got a knife in his hand let's talk about that man <laughs> You know, hey, I see you got a knife in your hand. What are we going to do about that? You know, and most people would run the other way or just call the cops or something. No, I'm going to go talk to this cat. Now, that's just me. I'm a weird person. But I am like, I think we all could find more freedom if we just decided to own the acquired taste that we are. Mm -hmm. All an acquired taste. We're all distinct, made that way. We are unique, live in it. And that will be a stand for anybody building something. And then you telling, you making a list of the amazing world-class leaders that trusted you, that's not a threat to the right people. That's an invitation to the right people. That's a, it's something that I, I have definitely been realizing, especially as we've kind of get, gotten more connected and been more connected with you guys and, and listening to your podcast episodes actually, and really being just reflecting a lot on what it, this, this point in my life that I feel like is sort of a, not a fork in the road, but just, um, yeah, like you said, sort of a big shift and what you said, sort of the ownership of the work that I've done and realizing like, okay, I know that I I've done that. And it was kind of sort of minimizing it. And I'm just going to continue to do my thing. And just at a point now where I'm finding myself in situations with some really successful people and being like, holy crap, like I actually am bringing so much value. Like how much have I missed out on, you know? And, and this is actually something I was just talking to another code, a friend of mine, um, over brunch recently. And he was, we were talking about, he went to therapy and, and we were talking about our, our issues with code is constantly sort of undermining this. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily a code thing. I think it's a human thing, but I think sometimes it can be a little bit more, um, more of an issue at times. Cause it's just sort of like, well, we just do what you do. And, you know, like, like you guys were saying with the, what the rabbi said, you pull your, 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 your bootstraps up and you just get stuff done. And then, you know, but then you, you, when you minimize it, then you also, like you said, it's sort of like that in- invitation to other people of how you can serve them is missed out on. And, um, and all these other sort of maybe 
kind of experiences to grow in and, uh, and experience the full beauty and complication of life. Um, when, you know, when you're sitting away and sort of minimizing who you are. And so that's something I've, I've, has really been coming up for me in the last couple of weeks and sort of walking more into who I am, what I've, what I feel like God has built me for. And then just like you said, Adrian, you know, just being owning, being a passionate person instead of being like, okay, I gotta, I gotta pull back a little bit, but no, I I feel the same way. I'm like, I, I just go right into all kinds of deep stuff with people. And I'm like, well, life's too short. Like why, why mince words and why waste time making small talk? Like there's, there's way too much to learn about and talk about and experience together than to, than to, you know, have shallow experiences. So. Amen. Don't apologize. Yeah. (laughs) You can never be too much for the people that you're for. Ooh, I like that. Amen. Yeah, that should and be a T-shirt, TNG T-shirt. <laughs> TNG we'll T-shirt, right there. Put it up. Uh, we'll get you to design it, Beth. Okay. I'll, I'm happy to. All right. <laughs> this has been so good. Thank you so much. Like, I mean, just as Adrian already stated, and Dan, thank you for showing up, open and transparent. These always, when the guests show up the way you have, they always become the most pivotal conversations for me personally, and so that's that's happened for me. I've got pages of notes, both from you, Beth and Dan and Adrian and, and what all of us have contributed. So thank you so much for your time and for your generosity and being here with us. And, and it's just so great to have you on here. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was super fun. Hope, hope uh, people get a lot of value out of it. Awesome. And where do people connect with you? Uh, refugeagency.com. That's my, my last name actually means refuge. So that's kind of uh, what inspired it. So amazing. Oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Refuge, agency.com. We'll link everything yeah. in the show notes and any and other then, socials and stuff. So go ahead. And then also childlivesmattermarch.org is our website for if anybody's interested in supporting anti-child trafficking. Um, you know, you can find us there and on Instagram as well. Childlivesmatter.march. Love it. Beth, thank you so much again. Thank you guys. Thank you. Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye, everybody.